All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hey there, welcome to episode 62 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Lauren. I'm here with my sister Renee. Hey everyone. And our guest today is Todd White from Dry Farm Wines. We are so excited to have him on because Renee and I are huge fans of Dry Farm Wines. And if you don't know about Dry Farm, they are a natural wine merchant that sources natural wines and they actually lab test to ensure that each bottle is sugar-free, lower in sulfides, and lower in alcohol. The company is amazing because they support small natural growers and are very passionate about bringing awareness to regenerative agriculture and supporting natural wine consumption for health. 
So just as kind of a follow-up from our interview with James Swanick, I was so incredibly motivated by hearing James talk about the no alcohol lifestyle, but I have to be completely honest. I don't know if I can ever completely cut out alcohol. So enter Dry Farm Wines. I think it's amazing, (laughs) right, Renee? Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we've been pretty obsessed with it since the day we first heard about it. And you know, you've probably seen a lot of our posts on social media with wine bottles, drinking wine, that, that's dry farm wines in case you're wondering. But I think really it made so much sense to us when we first heard about it because we've spent so many years focusing on taking out chemicals and additives and artificial flavoring from our food. It's like, why would we drink that in our wine? right? It doesn't, yeah, it didn't really make totally. sense. And the really crazy thing that Todd will get into as well is that the alcohol industry doesn't really need to label what's in a product. So that's kind of scary in itself because I know at least the food industry, yeah, it's a lot of crappy food, but at least you know what chemicals you're eating and consuming versus wine. You have no idea. So when we first heard about this, we're like, absolutely. This makes perfect sense. Yeah, I agree. I used to feel so terrible drinking wine. I've always loved wine because I think it's such a huge social connector, right? Like you're, you sit around a dinner table with family or you go enjoy a lovely bottle with friends. And I used to feel awful the next day, actually not even just the next day. I would immediately get a stuffy nose, start to feel a little foggy. And then the next day, of course, hangover, grogginess, my recovery score since I've had my aura ring was absolutely terrible. I don't know why it took me so long to connect this, but like, there's another option (laughs) to not feel terrible. And the first time I drank dry farm wine, it was like, wow, the clouds parted. I felt amazing. (laughs) I didn't have any of that, the negative uh, effects, like the, the symptoms the next day. So really awesome to discover this stuff. And, you know, we're not huge drinkers, but I think if you want to include alcohol in your life, this is an amazing solution for that. So... Dry Farm is actually a membership-based subscription. So you can sign up and you can get six or 12 bottles. You can pause this at any time. You can get a full box of red or white. You can get a combo. They have seasonal wines. Sometimes they'll have rosé, obviously, in the summer. Sometimes orange wines. And it's kind of like a nice surprise. Every time you get a new box, it's it's whatever they want to send you because they have such strict regulations. So um, you kind of never know what you're going to get. And... Uh, I've never had an American bottle in my box. What about you, Renee? Nope. Have not seen one. So that tells you something. Yeah, it's cool. Every time you get a new case, you're like, oh, what's going to be in this one? Is it Austrian or French or Italian? Like, it's just so fun. And I love reading all the labels. Yeah. You don't have to travel. You can just get dry farm and try wines from all over the world. It's amazing. (laughs) So one thing I didn't get to tell Todd in this interview, because we ran out of time, but my hack for this, because I still want to go out and be social sometimes, I have actually snuck dry farm wine into a bar because I can't drink regular wine anymore. I cannot drink commercial wine because now I know what it feels like and I've discovered you know, the benefits of dry farm. So I've snuck dry farm into a bar before. I just like get a glass in the corner, hide my bottle and- I can't believe you. you. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way. It's the only way. The other option is you can have a restaurant that actually allows you to bring in your own wine, but sometimes you don't have to pay a corkage fee, but yes. Yeah. I mean, but when <laughs> you're socializing, way. you don't always get to choose where you're going and, you know, want to be exactly. friends. So anyways, we're so excited for Todd to get into the company, why they started his passion around wine. It's a great conversation. And one last thing, I'm going to read you his bio before we get started. 
So Todd has been a serial entrepreneur and creator since he was 17. Today, after 15 years in the wine business, his life is dedicated to educating and helping people make better choices about food, nutrition, and how they think about consuming alcohol. As the founder of Dry Farm Wines, a writer, speaker, and a leader in the organic natural wine movement, he has widely educated communities on conscious consumption. Todd is deeply passionate about bringing people together to share love and laughter through natural wine and the health benefits it provides. All right. So excited for this. Can't wait to share it with you guys. And if you want to learn more about Dry Farms membership subscription, stay tuned until the end of the episode. Let's get into it. Welcome, Todd. We are so excited to get you on the show. Our audience has been wanting to learn more about Dry Farm Wines for quite some time because Renee and I are huge, huge, huge fans of Dry Farm Wines. It has changed both, both of our lives. But we know that stuff goes deeper than just the wine itself. I think the planet is suffering from a lack of sustainability. And there's even further problems with corruption within our agricultural industry in this country. And I know you're a huge advocate for this, for bringing transparency to the industry. So I think to kick us off, can you tell us why the Dry Farm Company is so important and what we need to know about what it's doing? Well, I think to understand our mission, it's it's best to look back just a little further to kind of how we started. So we were biohackers, right? And have been biohacking for before it was even a term, right? Starting really experimenting with the ketogenic diet um, back with the Atkins diet in the 1980s. And so before anybody really understood what we now understand about keto or uh, low carb or modified keto. And so, you know, that's sort of where it began was we were just trying to find, I was trying to find a better way to drink wine. So I really wasn't thinking about it as a business. It's the garbage truck going by. I thought it had made its last loop there, (laughs) but anyway, windows open enjoying some fresh California air, not so fresh today with the fire, but right. uh, Yeah. So anyway, so I was just trying to find a healthier way to drink wine. And I I didn't really, even though I live in Napa Valley, right in the heart of Napa Valley, which is the most important wine appellation in North America. I, I really didn't know as many people here don't really know what's going on in wine. So the story with wine really comes down to money and greed right? And scale. And so the same thing that happened to our food supply, meaning massive corporate consolidation and nine or 10 companies that touch most of the food product that is distributed in the United States, the same thing happened in the wine industry. So over the last couple of two or three decades, the wine industry has consolidated secretly, right? They have a few secrets. We're going to talk about those today. But one of those is, one of them is the consolidation of the industry. And so today, the top three wine companies make over 52% of U.S. wines, just the top three. The top 30 companies make over 70% of U.S. wines. So when you go in a grocery store or in a bottle shop and you see all these wine bottles, most of that wine is made by just a handful of people, right? Now, they don't want you to know that. So they hide behind thousands of brands and, and labels, right? So because they want to have a label with a farmhouse or a chateau on it. And they want you to think that you're drinking from this charming farmhouse. When in fact, you're likely drinking from massive wine factories located in Southern and in, in central California. So this consolidation of the industry has really damaged the quality of wine. Right. And so, because they're not trying to make wine 
better or fast or, or healthier. They're trying to make it faster and cheaper, right? And so what happens in that process in order to make wine in these quantities, right? And to make it cheaper, they use additives and chemicals in the process to control the risk of winemaking. See, when you make wine, it's a living thing. It has bacteria in it. So making it, it has risk, of risk in fermentation, risk in bacteria. And so the way you eliminate those risks are by using chemicals and additives. And so the biggest secret of the wine industry is that there are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Now, the reason you don't know about those 76 additives is because the wine industry has spent millions of dollars in lobby money to keep contents labeling off of wine, right? And so wine is the only major food product without an ingredients label. In addition to the fact it has no nutritional information on it, but there's no contents label. Which is just crazy. It is crazy because we believe that there should be transparency. If you want to drink that wine that may contain things like dimethyl dicarbonate, which is a toxic chemical, may contain ammonia phosphate or copper sulfate. If you want to drink those things, that's fine. But I think you should have that choice. I don't want to drink it in any amount. I only want to drink fermented, sugar-free, and in our case, low-alcohol wines. Mm-hmm. You know, it surprises a lot of people when we talk about alcohol, and we'll, we can talk more about this, but it surprises them to hear from, quote, the wine guy say that alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin, and it ruins millions of lives a year, right? And so yeah. we need to be careful with alcohol. And so that's the reason we only drink and sell lower alcohol wines, as low as 7% up to 125 So that's sort of what's going on in the wine industry. In addition to when we talk about alcohol, this is another collusion between the government and the wine industry. The alcohol stated on a wine bottle. I'll use the word stated because it's by law, it's not required to be accurate. And so if it says 14%, it can be as high as 15.5% and still be legal. Even then, there's no compliance. And the reason for that turns back to the 1940s when most of these laws were written post-prohibition. And in those days, lab results from lab to lab could produce a variance in alcohol. And so it was just the technology was very low grade. And so they needed this kind of wiggle room to state what they thought was the amount of alcohol in a bottle. But today, that's not true. Today, alcohol testing is very precise. But the wine industry doesn't want to lose that ability to round alcohol down in most cases. I mean, the wine industry loves alcohol. See, I love wine, but I don't love alcohol. But the wine industry likes alcohol, and alcohol has been rising in wine over the last 30 years. And the reason for that, why they like it, is because alcohol is addictive, and alcohol is also what we call a domino drug. So the more you take, the more likely you are to take more, right? Hmm. And so, so it helps with of, sales. Yeah, it's a, it, exactly. <laughs> it's about money and greed as we started off this conversation. So we, we believe that drinking lower alcohol is just healthier, right? Because we know alcohol is a neurotoxin. And some people shouldn't drink at all. But if you do drink wine, then we try to think smarter about how to drink wine, right? I love wine. I don't love alcohol. Me it too. suit me just fine if I, most of the wines I drink are between 9% and 11.5%. 10, 10% wine is kind of my go-to amount of alcohol. Once it gets 
once it goes seven or eight percent, it doesn't really taste like wine anymore. It starts to taste more like a kombucha, um, <laughs> kind of like a, you know, just a, just a fermented elixir. It doesn't really taste like what we classically know as wine, particularly for reds. White can get lower in alcohol and it still tastes, you know, it still tastes a little bit like, like wine, but reds will not taste like wine so much. Hmm. What about like, uh, I mean, wine is nothing new, right? It's been around for a long time. <laughs> and our ancestors would make their own wine at home. Maybe was that typically lower alcohol? Like, well, the de- alcohol is going to be determined by the style in which the wine is picked. So the lower okay. the sugar at the, or bricks as it's known in, 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 in grape sugar, the lower the sugar and the fruit at the time of picking will correspond with lower alcohol. So the higher the sugar at the time of picking, then the higher the consequent outcome of the alcohol will be because how you make wine is you inoculate yeast and grape juice, which is full of sugar, and the yeast eats the sugar as its food source. The more sugar there is to eat, then the higher the corresponding alcohol will be at the end of the fermentation. So in the beginning, I was really looking for lower alcohol wines. I didn't know anything about the natural wine revolution. So what we drink and sell are known as natural wines. And this is a very confusing term to consumers because I say, well, you know, we only drink and sell natural wines. And they're like, well, aren't all wines natural? It's like, well, No, they're not for the reasons I just described to you, because most wines are not natural. Less than one-tenth of one percent of all the wines in the world are natural. And so this is further confusing because there's no international certification for natural wines. France just recently announced they're going to be the first country to certify natural wines. There's no certification in the U.S. Now, Dry Farm Wines, my company, does have a certification process that's over and beyond just natural wine. But natural wine has an international understanding. So anybody in the wine business or anybody who knows much about wine will know what natural wine is because it's a very simple standard. Natural wine is always biodynamic or organically farmed. And for those who don't know, biodynamic farming is a prescriptive advanced form of organic farming. But all natural wines are at least organically farmed. Number two, they're fermented with wild indigenous native yeast. This is a big deal because commercial wines are fermented with lab-cultured, lab-grown, modified yeast. And they use these lab-cultured and grown yeast because they've been modified to be stronger and to withstand a higher alcohol environment. And you can buy them in flavor profiles. Right. So if you want a wine that tastes like it's from from the Mediterranean region, they have a yeast for that. And you can also, because these lab grown yeast are very sturdy, they've been modified to be strong. You can make wine in very large quantities with them in a very risk free environment, as opposed to the wild indigenous native yeast. We'll talk about those for a moment. The yeast, every grape berry at the time of harvest has yeast on on the skin. It's a white, waxy looking film. But it's, whack, it's, 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 it's yeast that's been collected through the air that's indigenous to the vineyard. And that is the yeast that is used to make natural wines. The problem with it is it's temperamental. It's fragile. It's difficult to work with. It requires coddling, a lot of attention, right? <laughs> or you'll have a broken fermentation, then you have a huge problem. 
And you can't make wine in very large quantities using these fragile yeast. So the very first thing a commercial winemaker does is when they press the juice in the grape, the juice goes into a tank, then they pour sulfur dioxide in the tank to kill the native yeast because they can't have the yeast competing. So they kill the native yeast with sulfur dioxide, and then they inoculate the juice with this lab-cultured yeast. And then finally, so organic, biodynamic, native yeast, and then finally it's additive-free. And so there's nothing in, nothing out. It's just fermented grape juice. Now, we'll discover this and then kind of open up for some questions. So I mentioned that Dry Farm Wines has a certification process that certifies that it's natural wine. It meets all the criteria. Plus, we do lab testing to ensure that it's sugar-free. And then also we do lab testing for alcohol and for mycotoxins and molds and other standard tests that we run. But so we do have a certification process that that meets all of these criteria, which is the reason we're known as the keto wine or the paleo wine, because there's nothing in our wine and also that it's sugar-free. Now, it's fair to note that not all natural wines are sugar-free and not all natural wines are 12 or lower in alcohol. So, Mm. you know, it's going to be a winemaking style that will determine the alcohol amount, right? And so if you want to pick later with sweeter fruit, then you're going to end up with higher alcohol. And then finally, before we open up for various questions, the single biggest question we get is, well, how are your wines sugar-free? Right? I mean, there's sugar in grape juice, so how are, how are your wines sugar-free? Well, any wine that is fully fermented will be sugar-free. And when I say sugar-free, we mean less than one gram per liter which by law is statistically sugar-free. So a wine bottle is 750 milliliters, uh, which is three quarters of a liter. So we're saying far less than one gram in the bottle, right? So which statistically makes it sugar-free under the law. So how wine becomes sugar-free is, remember, when we make wine, we're inoculating or spontaneously fermenting in natural wine case because you don't inoculate, the yeast is already in the juice. It just spontaneously ferments. And so if we allow the fermentation process to complete, meaning that the yeast are allowed to eat all of the available sugar, then the wine will be sugar-free. But what's happening with commercial wines is that the winemaker is, again, breaking the fermentation intentionally with sulfur dioxide at the end. So there's a little device in the tank. It's a very unsophisticated device. It will show you how much sugar is in the juice. During the entire fermentation process, you can see the amount of sugar remaining in the juice and so, or in the wine because it's fermenting. And so at any time, you can stop that fermentation with the introduction of sulfur dioxide to kill the yeast, just as you do when you kill the native yeast with the same chemical. So they break the fermentation intentionally, leaving what's known as RS or residual sugar behind. That's how sugar gets in wine. So wine never has added sugar. It gets sugar in it through this intentional winemaking style, leaving residual sugar behind by breaking the fermentation before the yeast completes eating all the sugar. We recently tested the top 20 best-selling wines in America. And of the top 20 best-selling wines, only two of them met our criteria for sugar. So it's, you know, so it's a real thing. We only accept 31% of the wines that we taste into our portfolio. And all of them are natural wines. But they will fail sometimes for lab results, sometimes for alcohol, many times for sugar, or they don't meet our aesthetic. 
So we have a very specific aesthetic. And so uh, we like, we favor the way we eat. We favor a cleaner, lighter sort of taste, right? Lighter, fresher. So anyway, that's a few high points about what we're doing. Amazing. So question about the sugar, is it leftover? Do they leave the residual because that goes into the addictive part of the alcohol? Like the actual I don't alcohol? think they've thought that far about it. I, or is I don't, it just lazy? No, 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 no. It's an intentional, it's a, it's a winemaking style. See, sugar adds mouthfeel, sugar adds finish, sugar adds mm-hmm. glycerol, which is a, you know, a sugar byproduct that creates mouthfeel and kind of finish. When you drink our wines, you'll notice they don't have any kind of long finish, right? Because they don't have, they don't have any of these products in them, right? And right, so, I have noticed that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a very definitive decision to leave sugar behind. And so I don't think, I've personally not met anybody in the wine business, certainly in the traditional wine business, who, who thinks about sugar as a, an addictive thing. I would tell you, I think sugar is the most widely abused, most addictive drug in the market. And I, I know we agree on this because I know one of you is cyclical keto and the other is paleo. I know we are, and probably very low carb, probably even cyclically ketogenic. So I know we agree on this, that I believe, as do many of my health-loving friends, that that high blood glucose and the hyperproduction of insulin is the cause of most chronic illness, including weight gain and obesity. But aside from that, it also affects, you know, diabetes, cancer, heart disease. We, we believe that the hyperproduction of insulin is the cause of most chronic illness. We're right there with you. We both yeah. wear PGMs. We're like on high alert with the sugar. <laughs> I'm like all over it. And I'm just are you thinking wearing about- a Dex- That's not a Dexcom. What are you wearing? Freestyle, Libre. Okay, okay. Yeah. Have, I just think f- about kombucha, like the amount of sugar that's in kombucha. Uh, it's days. 12 grams. It's a health product. And now it's like you see the companies competing. It's more and more sugar every it's year. It's 12 to 15 grams per, per, per 30 ounce, uh, 12-ounce, 16-ounce serving. It's crazy. It's, it's, might as well drink it's half the half half the sugar, 70% of the sugar is in a Coke. Yeah. Right? That's crazy. I mean, it's just like, and it's How crazy. much sugar is in regular wine? Like a typical bottle? It just depends. It, you could, you would, you could be buying commercial wines that are sugar-free, but oh. I, I mean, you could, you just mm-hmm. don't know because there's no it's information on the bottle. I want to drink sugar-free wine. So you could find red wines or, you know, that would be considered or would meet our criteria. Remember I said, we tested the top 20 best-selling wines. Uh, that was red, white. It's just the top 20 best-selling wines in the U.S. And only two of the 20 met our criteria, right? Hmm. But, you know, but, but it could be quite common that they would be five, six, seven, eight grams. You know, it, it just depends. You know, it, it, it's not categorically, legal, uh, categorically, scientifically, wine can range from zero grams per liter to uh, as high as 300 grams per liter. But that wow. 300 grams you're talking about, that's like super sweet ice wines, like super sweet dessert wines. Like they're strictingly sweet, you know, like they're just super, super sweet. You've probably yeah. tasted them before, mm-hmm. right? And like ice wines or dessert wines or that are obviously meant to be hyper, hyper sweet. You know? Right. And not to drink okay. the whole bottle. 
No, <laughs> yeah. you drink like a super small serving of it. Yeah, I don't drink it at all. But but yeah, I if can't you drink. Did the drink sweet it? Stuff. You couldn't drink more than you know just a very small amount because it's so sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have any acid in it. Like, you know, one of the reasons you can't taste sugar in wine, right? So you, even we can't taste it. Sometimes I feel it, but because I know what it feels like to eat sugar, right? Cause I don't eat it. So sometimes I can feel it, but can't taste it. And the only reason that we know it contains sugars because it fails on our lab test. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because acid levels in wine are high. And so it's just like, it's just like in a cola, they have to add so much ascorbic acid in it, or you couldn't drink it. It'd be too sweet at 32 grams, you know, for a 12 ounce serving. It would be so sweet. You couldn't drink it. So they balance that sweetness with acid. That's the reason if you look at the ingredients, which fortunately the ingredients are published, including nutritional information on a soda drink, you know, you'll see that ascorbic acid is one of the main behind sugar. It's one of the leading ingredients. You know, they're, they're, I haven't drank any of these. So I don't really know, but there's some, you know, there's some fairly low sugar kombuchas that have come out on the market, like hard kombuchas, like three or four grams. Mm-hmm. And you see also ciders in the same range, five grams, six, seven, eight grams of sugar. That Even that affects me. Yeah, I, I don't drink it. I, yeah. I just don't drink sugar at all. You know, I don't even drink coconut water for the same reason because it contains, you know, it's not a lot. But usually less than 10 grams, but you know, I, I just, feel it. I just, I just feel it. I also only eat once per day. I've been, you know, on 24 hour intermittent fasting for over three years now. And so I don't have anything but water. I'm also caffeine free for the last year. So I don't have anything but water or chamomile tea throughout the day. So any kind of thing that comes into my body like that would a break my fast B I would feel it. Mm-hmm. Right. So is sugar the reason that people feel hungover after wine? I'm sure there are other components like the mold. We don't, well, there's the wine hangover and then there's the alcohol hangover, right? Which is why you get, you know, less of a negative remnants drinking lower alcohol wine. So alcohol is going to dehydrate you, right? And so if you drink a lot of alcohol, you're going to have a hangover either way you cut it. Right. Just you're going to get a hangover from. But if you're drinking lower alcohol or less alcohol, you're going to have less of an impact. As for, quote, the wine hangover, or what we know is really the red wine hangover. We don't really know what causes it. There's no sufficient research, nobody to fund sufficient research to determine what the causes are. But here's what we do know for sure is that when you drink natural wine, when you drink our sugar free, lower alcohol wine, you simply feel better. Right. And so that much we know for sure. I do think there's some correlation between how you feel given sugar and alcohol is a nasty, nasty combination. And here's the anecdotal evidence that I would submit to you to, to think about. You've probably had a shot of tequila before. Well, maybe two. Um, (laughs) That being said, the, the remnant effects of having a couple of shots of tequila is very different than drinking two margaritas, right? Yeah, definitely. And so when you get that sugar and alcohol together, it just creates then these mixed drinks that are very sugary. I just use margarita as an example because most people have had shots of tequila and particularly in the biohacking world, because it's, you know, it's the spirit of choice among biohackers. Mm-hmm. I would submit to you, it's not my spirit of choice because it's too high in alcohol. It's 45% alcohol. It, that, that's the reason I don't drink it. Although I kind of like the taste of it or, you know, I even like the taste of, you know, like vodka and a martini too, but I don't drink spirits because they're too high in alcohol. 
but it, uh, but tequila is the sort of the biohackers drink of choice is just a neat clean shot of, of tequila. But if you've had a margarita, which I'm sure you have, the remnant <laughs> effects of having a margarita are very different than having a shot of tequila, although it contains the same amount of alcohol. Right. I've heard people say like, I have a sugar hangover when they do all the sweet drinks. Oh, I would be in a coma. I mean, yeah, like, I, can't I haven't do it. drank that concentration of oh. sugar in many years. Yeah. Right? And how long have you been doing keto? Well, therapeutically, I mean, ex- experimentally and accidentally back, you know, to the Atkins days when we, nobody knew anything about it. Uh, and, and even even in the original Atkins diet in the 1980s and early 90s, when it was kind of raging in popularity, even then, you know, Bob Atkins was recommending that people, you know, check their ketone levels through a urine stick, right? So that was in the original. And so he knew that the state of ketosis was was burning fat, right? And so this is long before blood meters came out, you know, or became readily or readily available. And uh, nobody really understood anything. And then Dr. Dominic Diagostino and others, you know, about 10 years ago started publishing research on ketogenic diet, really working for the Department of Defense and uh, specifically for Navy, Navy SEAL divers. And so that's where the kind of research funding originally came from. And then ketogenic diet emerged in the biohacking community about seven years ago, started to kind of get really on the fringe of people who were dedicated biohackers, started learning about keto six or seven years ago. I've been keto for just over six years. And I, but therapeutic, I was therapeutically, and I may experiment with it again. I was therapeutically keto for probably two and a half years, where I was like super geeked out on it. You know, regular blood testing and just like super super geeked out. Now I would describe my diet as super low carb, uh, modified ketogenic. I don't eat enough fat. I don't. When I was therapeutically ketogenic, I was eating eighty percent fat calories. Now. Um, I eat a lot of fat, but not, I was just super geeked out at that time. Mm-hmm. May experiment with it again. I feel great. I'm at top performance in therapeutic keto, but it's just a little limiting, right? I mean, it just yeah. doesn't give me the variety that I want in terms of food choices. And then I'm, so I really love food. So what I did to sort of compensate for that <clears throat> and keeps me in ketosis every day is because I only eat once per day. And when I do eat, I'm not eating anything that's going to be, you know, negligent. So I don't eat fruit. I'm not eating bread. I don't eat pasta or, you know, very super infrequently I'll eat rice. I don't eat anything grown below ground. Occasionally I eat French fries, but in small amounts. I also find food combining. So if I want to have some French fries, you know, if I eat some protein and fat ahead of that, then the fries kind of don't, as opposed to if I just sat down and ate a bag of fries, mm-hmm. then I would have, I would have a glycemic response. Sure. But food combining really mitigates the glycemic response. So no matter pretty much what I eat, I don't eat desserts or sugar or anything like that. And so, you know, basically it's clean proteins, uh, vegetables and uh, olive oil and, you know, butter. Yeah. Um, and I love cheeseburgers as don't eat the bun. <laughs> there you yeah. go. And, and so when you have your wine, I guess you have it with that one meal. I do. Combine I do. it at the same time. I probably would eat less. I mean, I, for me, fasting is 
I think the most powerful medical modality we have. Problem is we don't know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. Don't know how to dose it. Uh, It works better for some people than others. But for me, I would never return to eating more than one meal a day. And if I didn't like to drink every day, I'd probably experiment with eating less. It's just that I really like, I really love to drink wine. And so, you know, I need to eat (laughs) in order to drink. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been experimenting with regular extended fasting uh, from three to seven days. I've, I've found for me personally that three days seems to be sort of like the sweet spot. Like I feel like I've purged everything like day three and beyond is pretty easy. It's day two and early in day three where I feel kind of most of the pull. Hmm. And so for me, it seems that three days is probably the right prescription. And I'm doing that at least once a month, sometimes every other week. Yeah, so, it's great that you found what works for you because it's so highly personal. If we don't have this research, the best we can do is just end of one and figure out what works best for us. We right? just don't have the research. I mean, George Cahill's work, is, which was done in the 1960s, is the, uh, is the last real, or maybe it was the 1940s. Maybe it was a long time ago, even before we had kind of the, the uh, somebody should look up, see when George Cahill's study was. Maybe it was in the 40s, but, uh, but it's the most famous study on fasting. And, and basically these people were quarantined, you know, they were isolated. And so today, ethically, you couldn't, it wouldn't even, the study would never be approved, but it, it's really difficult to get good, solid research on fasting. Nobody's really doing it, it needs to be funded. Uh, Peter Atia, even, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think Peter Atia, you know, is probably the most vocal person about it right now saying that, you know, this is our most powerful prescription modality. This is the, this is the single most powerful thing we have in our toolbox, but we don't know how to prescribe it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and then you but, have the Netflix documentary unwell that did an episode on fasting. I don't know if you watched that, but no, they make fasting sound so dangerous. So then people I can't are hearing think of that. anything safer than not putting in, than not putting anything in my body. Right. 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 The moment <laughs> right. we put something in our body, I don't care whether it's good or bad. We have a we have, have a biological and a physiological and a chemical response. Right. So putting water in seems perfectly sensible to me, right? Yeah. And getting zero response along with the autophagy and all the other benefits that come along with fasting. The benefits are well known. That part of the science we know. The problem, what we don't know is how to prescribe it. Mm-hmm. Is eating once a day optimal? Is eating every other day optimal? You know, is eating three days a week optimal? And we don't know how, we don't fully know how it impacts medical treatments. You know, there's a lot of science out there to show that a ketogenic diet, therapeutic ketogenic diet is very beneficial to people in chemo, you know, in combination Mm -hmm. with chemo that they have a more positive outcome. We don't know, although there's science to suggest that, that fasting is helpful in preventing cancer. But again, we just don't, we don't have enough information. Right. Yeah. Unless we're getting regular blood tests hooked up to a machine short-term and long-term. If we could isolate people, you know, and put them (laughs) through these long-term fasting studies. And then there's, there's this group of folks out there. I've never done it, but there's, you know, there's a group of people out there saying that 30 day water only fast or like change your life. I don't know. I've never done it, but they're super effective. I don't think I ever will. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just crazy. I'll listen to to the takeaways. (laughs) I'm just crazy enough to maybe give a stab at it. I think yeah. uh, just to see what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you talk see- about wine, maybe not just dry farm wine, but all wine and the 
the keto diet and, and fasting and how that fits in. And maybe you could speak to the dangers of doing it incorrectly. Well, for me, when I went on this search for a better way to drink wine, I didn't know anything about natural wine, had never heard the term before. This was five years ago. Nobody, very few people in America had heard the term. Now it's fairly well known because we've told millions of people about it and then it's been picked up and, you know, we've been featured in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mainstream press articles and lots of celebrities who endorse us and so on and so forth. We've been in a bunch of books and thousands of doctors and so on. So a lot of people now know what natural wine is. I'd never heard of it before. I wasn't looking for natural wine. I didn't know about the additives either. I was looking for lower alcohol wine. And so in my pursuit of looking for lower alcohol wine and talking to people about low alcohol wines, a friend of mine said, have you tasted any of the low alcohol wines coming out of Europe? And I was like, no, never heard of it. So yeah, you can get some lower alcohol wines there. You should try that. So I did. And through that, I stumbled quite accidentally across the natural wine revolution that was just beginning at that time in central France, all over Europe, but it was really it really originated in, in central France. But look, 100 years ago, all wines were natural. This farming practices that led to, you know, chemical farming started in the 1920s. And then wine additives began gaining popularity in the 1970s and 80s, right? But if you dial the clock back 100 years, even 50 years ago for organic, for organic farming, wines were natural. And wines in the Napa Valley or wines in California were common, even 25 or 30 years were commonly 12%. Not today. Today, they're 14, 14 and a half, 15, 15 and a half percent. It, the things we've already talked about alcohol, but alcohol adds density to wine. And so it makes it bigger and bolder. And for the American palate that's been desensitized and killed with processed food and sugar, so when you eat that kind of diet, you want something that's big and bold to cut through that you can taste, right? The way we eat, we don't want that taste. It's inconsistent with how we approach food in general or how we approach taste. We want something that's lighter and fresher and seems more present, right? Not bigger and bolder. To address your question, I, you know, I thought it was just higher alcohol, which is why I drink lower alcohol wines. I, I was just couldn't drink many people, many people, not all, but many people on a ketogenic diet find that their tolerance for alcohol is lower and that that alcohol generally affects them in a more adverse way. And that was certainly my experience. And what led me to finding lower alcohol wines, which led me to finding natural wines that were also lower alcohol and then sugar-free, right? So I don't know if there's any dangers to it. I don't, you know, alcohol has been around for, you know, 10,000 years. I don't, I don't know if there's anything dangerous about keto and alcohol. I just know many people, maybe even most, just, just find that their relationship with alcohol changes when they become ketogenic. Yeah. I have heard that from multiple people and some speculate it has to do with the glycogen reserves. Maybe when you're on keto, you have less glycogen and that affects the alcohol. I don't know. Very interesting. So you keep saying, you know, a lot of people have probably heard about natural wines. I know people are going to their local store, maybe looking for organic wines, but I think a lot of people don't know what dry farm wines are like in the well, whole irrigation issue. 
Yeah, so we'll, we can talk about irrigation. So in addition to the other certifications, our wines must be irrigation-free, which means that they're dry-farmed. Dry-farmed wines, which is the name of my company, is the key foundation to our approach to how to drink well and, and think about wine is that, is that they should be dry-farmed, meaning that there's no irrigation used in farming, which is the primary reason why we don't sell any domestic wine. So all of our wines come from mostly from Europe. We have four growers in South Africa and four in Chile, but most are spread across Europe. And the reason being is that in the U.S., less than 1% of American vineyards are, are dry farmed. All, it, irrigation is ubiquitous, which is, the, which is the primary reason, not the only reason, but the primary reason that we don't sell domestic wine because virtually all of it is irrigated. Hmm. There are other reasons, including alcohol, domestic wines are typically not lower enough in alcohol and domestic wines because the cost of vineyard land in California, where the most of the wine is grown, makes wines largely unaffordable. And so our wines are very affordable. They average $22 a bottle and then we pay for shipping. And so they're super affordable for, for a handcrafted natural product. But in the U.S., and most of that cost is driven by the cost of the land. So in the U.S., vineyard land is super expensive, right? Because it's very, you know, chic and glitzy to have vineyards, right? And so they're, yeah. they're the pursuit of rich people, right? And so they're expensive. It's not like that in Europe. And most of the farm, small family farms we work with, most of them are multi-generational landowners. So they have no capital cost in the land. But dry farming, see, irrigation is bad for the planet. It makes for a lazy vine, and it produces fruit with lower polyphenols, which are the, you know, the healthy compounds found in wines, and particularly in red wines. We can talk about that in a moment, why they're higher in red wines than white. So irrigation, first of all, it cre- creates a lazy vine, right? It was, first of all, it's bad for the earth. I mean, it's a, it was a drought in California, but you know, virtually all, all vineyards are irrigated. It's not necessary to irrigate a grapevine, although that's what California analogists will tell you, oh, it's too hot and dry here. We have to irrigate. That's just not true. Vines are grown all over the earth in some of the most harsh climates in the world. I'll give you an example, Sicily, which is an island off the coast of Italy. It's 100% volcano, super rocky, super hot, super dry, right? I mean, just like dusty dry. And, you know, irrigation is not used there. And so you irrigate for money and greed. Irrigated vineyards are cheaper to farm. They are easier to farm. The yields coming off of an irrigated vine, because if it's irrigated, it's probably also getting liquid nitrogen or fertilized fed to it. So the yields on an irrigated vine are higher and the fruit weighs more. Might not surprise you if you irrigate a grapevine and you pump that berry full of water, it's going to weigh more. The fruit's sold by the ton. More it weighs, more it's worth. Wow. And so that's why you irrigate. Because an unirrigated grapevine requires a lot of soil management to lock in the moisture. So an irrigated grapevine has a root ball that's about three feet in diameter, about three or four feet deep. Whereas an unirrigated grapevine can have a root structure that can span 30 or 40 feet deep. Because this vine has these little capillary hair, you know, hair-like roots that are constantly searching and digging and breaking apart particles of stone and and soil looking for moisture and nutrient 
right? Because dry farm vineyards are also not fertilized. And here's what we, anybody in the wine business, no one would dispute the following fact. Uh, there's many controversies and many points of dispute in grape farming and winemaking, but this is one that is not in dispute. When a grapevine struggles, this is the reason that vines are planted close together. And this is the reason you'll see on pedigreed wine bottles of expense, you'll see hillside select or it's a hillside vineyard, right? Because a grape that grows on an elevation is also stressed, more stressed than one is growing on the flat ground. And so everybody would universally agree that the stress of the plant produces a a grape of higher character and better quality. Mm -hmm. So not irrigating a plant certainly stresses it significantly more than an irrigated plant. So in fact, in most of Europe, it's against the law to irrigate a grapevine, right? Because Europeans who've been growing wine for over 3,000 years know what we know. Irrigation fundamentally impacts the character and the quality of fruit. The and these appellations have these laws because when you see something is from, you know, Beaujolais, or you see something is from Bordeaux, or you see something is from a specific appellation, that appellation has rules to protect the quality of the fruit coming from that from that brand, if you will, that appellation. And so irrigation is just one of those. Now they also have some bad rules too that require the use of certain chemicals and treatments in wine that ensure that all the wines coming from that region have this kind of consistency and they will not be natural wines. In fact, in France, they had to create a separate category called Vin de la France to uh, allow wines to come out of France that were non-appellation specific, that were natural because there were practices being required in the appellation that would make the wine unnatural. And so in order to allow wines to come out of France without a specific appellation designation, they had to create this natural wine category. This is before they announced they were going to certify natural wines. This was just like in response to natural wine farmers who were not meeting their appellation rules, which might include the requirement to use certain chemicals in farming or winemaking in order to ensure that all wines coming out of there were sterile and protected by the Appalachians brand. But no one would dispute that stressing any kind of plant causes it to produce, you know, more protection for the plant and then consequently higher polyphenols, which is why organic fruit and dry farm fruit is higher in polyphenols. You know, like the most the most famous one is called resveratrol, right? right. Mm-hmm. Because resveratrol has been shown to increase lifespan in organisms. Been no proof it increases lifespan in in humans. It's been shown in small organism yeast and worms to extend lifespan, and some studies in mice. But again, there's so many cofactors we just don't know. There's no conclusive evidence that the only conclusive evidence we've shown that we know works is restriction of calories in terms of extending lifespan. Right, and, right. Um, and there's been some pretty compelling evidence around that, mm-hmm. uh, that, which is another reason why, you know, eating less seems to be a good idea. People, you know, like standard Americans, like, you know, I tell them I don't eat. They're like, oh my God, that's so dangerous. You know, don't you <laughs> like, how do you get enough calories? And I'm like, right. well, actually see, I have, my goal was to eat fewer calories. So I don't worry about having a big meal. 
I hope eat until I'm full. I'm not trying to get more calories. I'm trying to get less. And right. so that's the American mindset. Beings, yeah, Americans, but just human nature in general, we default to survival. And people think that calories is survival, but it's so much more. Complex. What's unnatural, what's unhealthy, and what's dangerous is eating three or four or five, six times a day or 10 times a day. Ooh, you know, ten constantly times a day. having That's... some chemical stimulus to your body, you yeah, know, and right. constant blood glucose and spiking insulin 10 times a day. That's what's dangerous. Yeah. Never you giving know. your organs or metabolism a rest ever. Yeah. So crazy. Sounds exhausting. <laughs> so I'm Who so happy to learn more about this irrigation. That's so interesting because I, when I think of dry farm, I always think of these really sturdy vines that are like reaching and growing and they're just like strong, but that's really cool to know that they actually are more full of nutrients. They're stronger for a reason. And therefore we're getting a little more, I guess, nutrition and bang for our buck. Yeah. It's like hormesis for it, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. It's the same thing. Too. It's exactly so the same cool. thing as hormesis. Exactly. Yeah. It makes us stronger. makes them stronger. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. So uh, just out of respect for your time, Todd, we will link tons of resources to you and to Dry Farm Wines so our audience can learn more about it because it sounds like this stuff is pretty endless. But we like to always end, end by asking our guests for a piece of advice. If you're going to give our audience one piece of advice that they can start working on today that would better their health, mind, well-being, oh, anything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I got a couple. So I want to begin <laughs> with it. our favorite quote at Dry Farm Wines. See, at Dry Farm Wines, we begin every day, and I missed the session today because it starts at 10 o'clock Pacific. We start every single day with an hour of meditation together. And there's typically lessons and quotes that are shared. And our favorite quote has been attributed to everyone from Buddha to Abraham Lincoln, but I don't know who, I don't know who wrote it. But it goes like this. Once we look back on a life that was well-lived, we're likely to come to the conclusion that three things were most important. And those three things are how much we loved, how gently we lived, and how gracefully we released the things that are not meant for us. And so I think those three things are you know, central to everything that we believe I believe meditation is the single most important biohack in history. And so meditation really speaks to living gently. And the more we can love, which is kind of a beautiful thing about wine, is that when we share wine over an evening meal, as I did in my dining room here with 14 friends last night, where we had a five-hour, six-hour dinner and countless bottles of wine, is that the love generated by the sharing of that community is when we share a bottle of wine, there's something it's unlike any other kind of alcoholic beverage. There's just something magical about it. You know, sharing a bottle of wine or two with friends is just such a magical, magical thing and and really spreads and engenders love. And so the more we can love the, the healthier our life will be. Right. And then to live gently and then just to surrender, release the things that just aren't meant for us. And all through our life, so I'm a lot older than the two of you, all through our life, we are presented with opportunities to surrender and let something go or someone go, right? Just uh, loving, living gently and releasing is probably the best advice anyone could get. 
Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for sharing your love for wine. Thank you for sharing all this incredible information about the wine and also just about biohacking and our, our mental wellness and peace. It was really beautiful. And we're just so grateful that you could share this time with us. Thank you. Much love to you both and everyone who's listening. And uh, thanks for having me today. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Before we wrap up, if you are interested in a Dry Farm Wines membership, scroll down to our show notes. There is a link there that is going to take you to the website. When you get to the website, there is going to be a pop-up that will offer you a bottle for a penny. That is not a scam. It's with your first purchase. If you use our link, you'll get an extra bottle with your first purchase for just one cent. And again, you can really customize your order. So you get to choose the delivery frequency, the varietal, the type of wine, the quantity, and you can cancel or pause at any time. This company is amazing. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and we really hope you'll enjoy Dry Farm Wines as much as we do. All right, to healthier and cleaner drinking. We'll see you soon. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. Happy biohacking.